Hi everybody, good to see you. Uh, my name is Joel. We are going through the Apostles' Creed here at Emmanuel this term, which is an ancient summary of the Christian basics. It, it, it doesn't mean basic in the kind of um, simple and sort of stupid sense. It means it means that the key things that the kind of headlines of the Christian faith, and it, it's worth our time and attention, and, and we're looking at it in depth over this term. We've got to the, the point in the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus, having suffered under Pontius Pilate and been crucified and buried, descended into hell or descended to the dead or descended into Hades, as some of the translations Put it, and uh, I want to talk therefore about the, the fact that Jesus went to the darkest place there could be, went to the, the, the lowest of the low. He truly descended in, in the, the full sense and went down into death, death and mortality, not uh, our favorite subject normally, and yet one that we can't. Avoid and one that we can't perhaps on a personal level stop ourselves from thinking about sometimes quite morbidly. Uh, people will, will quietly, perhaps not wanting to share it, go through times of reflecting a lot on the fact that we're kind of slowly or maybe quickly going towards something inevitable we don't know and don't really want. And just the passing of time in general. Uh, seems, I think, I guess as we get further into life, more and more concerning, shocking, unwelcome. It Also, if we stop and step back and consider, ought to cause us to think a bit. The fact that we find the passing of time so strange, because we do, uh, should cause us to think. I reckon, I reckon C.S. Lewis put it best. I'm just going to read you this quote from, from uh, his book, Reflections on the Psalms. I was going to try and summarize what he said, but I decided in mid-sentence I would read it to you because he puts it so clearly and concisely. He, he says this, We are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim, how time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. So, so the fact that we find time passing upsetting and surprising may be a clue that actually we're not built for an age that shrivels up and a lifetime that's so limited and so interrupted and so brief. Actually, we're, we're perhaps intended for something more eternal. Perhaps we're, we're intended for immortality. And death, in that case, is an interruption. Death, in that case, is an enemy. And the Bible is very clear about that. The Bible does see death as an enemy. It doesn't see it as a good part of God's wonderful creation, but as something that has come in 
un, uninvited, if you like, not, not, not the intention in the original plan. And through the Bible, you get these scattered hints that part of God's purpose, part of God's rescue mission for the world and for, for us, the human race, for us, those who can belong to him, is to deal with death, finally, uh, to put death to death. And there's, uh, there's many places in Scripture we could refer to, but I'll, I'll just choose to kick us off today, this one from Isaiah chapter 25, one of the Old Testament prophets, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. He, he says this, And he will swallow up, this is Isaiah 25, verse 7 to 9, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I don't know about you. I don't particularly like um, greatest hits recordings, um, best of. I like albums that artists made themselves uh, because I don't like someone else choosing for me what are the best songs because they always get it wrong. Um, and it's kind of like that for some people in the way they see the Apostles' Creed because they, they might say, why, why do you choose these as the important things in the story of Jesus? Uh, you, you've gone from God the Father, uh, you've gone to uh, your Creator, you've gone to Jesus, it's gone to his virgin birth, which we looked at last week. We've leapfrogged stuff that we're going to look at next time. So again, we're changing, we're shifting around a little bit with the chronology, but you, you would see if you looked at the creed, and many have commented on this, kind of the highlights, kind of the, even, not even that, maybe just like the scores. It's just like the so-and-so, you know, three, one away to so-and-so. And you think, well, what about the game? What about who, who played well? Who, what, who got carded? Who got, who, who, who got injured? I want to know more about how the game went and many have said well the creed just rushes from the virgin birth right through to the last week of Jesus life what about his life why do we focus so much on his death and his burial and his descent into hell why is that such a thing for Christians well the answer is that it is absolutely central to what Jesus came to do if we want to understand Jesus, even in his own terms, this is the way he would have talked himself. We need to understand him through the grid, through the lens, if you like, of, of, of what, what happened in that last week or even that last few days or even that last day of his life. We need to understand it through the work of the cross and even what happened directly after his death upon the cross. That's how we understand him. And one of the ways we can see this is in the fact that his life itself points to the cross. The, the, the things he said and the things he did in different ways point to the cross. They help us to understand the cross 
and what the cross achieved. And the cross helps us to understand what, what he did during his life. They, they kind of feed each other. They, they, they flow into each other, his life and his death. And, and we understand him through the cross to the point where the miracles that he did and the, the deeds he did for other people make sense in the light of the cross. You can understand more clearly what the cross was about because, wait a minute, when he did this and that and the other thing, it was pointing to what he was going to do for us. When he fed 5,000 people with one person's bits of bread and fish, he, what did he do? Well, he took, he took bread, he took fish, he took on some bodies that were given to him. He, he broke them, and he distributed them to the crowd. He took something, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Well, that's, that's Christianity. God taking on the form of man, God blessing humanity, God, God being broken, and God giving himself. That's, that's what the cross is about. You look at the miracles and you, you see even that points to the self-giving, merciful, generous-hearted, kind, compassionate, bountiful, over-the-top love of God in Christ. And you see, that's what the cross is about. And when I see the cross and understand it, I actually get to be like those people that got fed on that bread and, bread and fish day in Galilee. The 5,000 who probably went to bed that night thinking, I will never forget this day. This is the most extraordinary day of my life. I got to eat magic food <laughs> that got made for thousands of people out of one pat lunch. This is an amazing day. No one will ever have a day like this. This day is incredible. This is the most amazing day. My friend, if you're a Christian, if you live in the God of the cross, then actually what you have is what they had, but just multiplied by infinity. Because it's the same thing, but on a bigger scale. It's God not just feeding 5,000, it's God feeding billions. And it's not through the breaking of fish and bread, it's through the breaking of himself. And so we, we get to see, even in his life, hints at the, the death that was to be so powerful and to bring such transformation and to feed us and so many. That's why we talk about it so much. That's why Christians need to be shamelessly big about the death of Jesus. Shamelessly present it to the world. Do white like Paul says, placard it, preach nothing amongst the Brightonians but Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's our message. It's at the heart of it. There's more to it, but that's at the heart of it. But I want to talk about a part of Jesus' work for us that we sometimes misunderstand or slightly skim over, and that is this specific description in the Apostles' Creed. He descended. Now, we talk about descending into hell. Um, but like I said, some translations change it to descending to the dead or descending to Hades. I think we're going this time with descending to the dead in most of the times we're reciting it. And I'm going to explain to you why we do say this and why it's important. It's, it's, it's often misunderstood and often kind of brushed away for a very good reason that we think, what, what do we mean by hell or Hades or the dead here? What, what is it referring to? What word is, is, is uh, in mind? Is it, is it the hell that means 
the place of punishment and suffering for wrongdoing that bad people go to when they die. That's, that's, that's the common idea of what hell is. If there is a hell, it's a place where really, really bad people go to and they suffer and they, they are punished after they die. Is that what Jesus went to? He just, after he died, after he breathed his laugh, last, he went down to a place of punishment. Well, the answer to that surely has to be no. No, he, he already on the cross received the punishment. It was done already. So we've got to work this out. Now, in the Bible, actually, the idea of death itself, let's put aside the, the, this, this issue of punishment. So follow me on this. this. This takes a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of understanding. So follow me on this for a moment. Uh, the idea of death itself is, as I said earlier, it's, a, it's an enemy. It's not, a, it's not something to be enjoyed in the Bible, especially in the, the Old Testament. It's, it's somewhat mysterious. It's kind of, it, it's, it means being cut off from life, cut off from bodily life, and going to a place which is, is, not, is not particularly desired in itself. The hints that we get seem to suggest a kind of a place of, of waiting for many people, perhaps for some people a place of torment. And then Jesus comes along and he, he teaches occasionally about the nature of life after death. Many people would be fascinated by this anyway. Maybe some of you have come across stories of what's called NDEs, uh, near-death experiences. I've, I've been researching some of the, the more kind of respected scientific uh, medical accounts just in the last few days of some of these, and, and, and they are truly fascinating because they demonstrate, it seems to me, beyond doubt that there are good reasons, just from a scientific angle, you know, whether you believe in God or not, it, it, it makes it very difficult to say that, that, that there's definitely no such thing as life after death. Because you have to kind of have your ears blocked and your eyes shut. It's just the reality of some of the stories demonstrates something quite clearly real about people's just, you know, people can, can clearly uh, describe experiences that, that, that only make sense if they were somehow conscious, their soul was somehow conscious. And this causes a lot of us to think, well, what is it? What is it? Well, like I say, the Bible talks about places of, 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 of referred to in, in Hebrew as Sheol, uh, yeah, a place of, of perhaps a place of waiting would be a way of understanding it. Sheol, in the in the Greek, this got translated in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament to the word Hades, and that's the kind of word that's kicked around even in our world still occasionally. Hades, and then the Greeks themselves, the ancient Greeks, they had that word too for their kind of Greek mythology underworld. So the two notions got sort of mixed up a little bit. And, and what you have is, is uh, a kind of a, a mixture of ideas that have gone around ever since. Of oh, There's some sort of life after death. There's some sort of underworld, whatever that means. Not literally under the ground necessarily. You know, even people who didn't have our way of seeing the world, the world that we do wouldn't have necessarily thought of it as literally somewhere underground. But somewhere, somewhere under, nevertheless. Somewhere low down, spiritually speaking, if you like. Somewhere you'd have to descend to. And Jesus talked about a, a, a man who trusted God and a man who trusted money. 
and how they both died. He told this story about a man called Lazarus and, a, and, and, a, and then a rich man. They both die, and Lazarus goes to be in the bosom of Abraham, kind of in the lap of Abraham. It, basically, he go, when he dies, he goes to be with his fathers. He goes to be with those who are faithful. He goes to be with the good people who've died. And the rich man goes to a, a place of torment where there's fire and pain and sorrow and, and heartbreak. And it's, it's, it's saying yeah, there's, there's stuff to be shunned after we die. There's stuff to, to avoid. And there's, there's somewhere that, that would be better to be in. That in comparison is very pleasant in comparison, but it's still, it's still death. You're still cut off. You're still, it's neither are to be desired necessarily. Death is still mysterious and sorrowful. And you have this, this idea of Sheol or Hades, this afterlife, with a, almost like a good section and a bad section to it, perhaps. A, a sort of a lower place as well as a, a higher place. Maybe we could put it that way. And, and this is the, the kind of general view of the world that we have. There might be a sort of a paradise sense to it, but it's still, in the end, death, and death is an enemy. And it's definitely that word that the Apostles' Creed is referring to when it says Jesus descended there. It does not mean Jesus descended into a place of full-on punishment. Why? Because on the cross he had already had that. On the cross, Jesus was receiving the punishment for sin, for wickedness, for all of our lusts and pride, laziness, greed, selfishness, the things that we do that are obviously despicable, that we feel ashamed of and know we should never have done, and the things that we would, we would not want anyone to know, things that we secretly do, the sins of our mind, the things we don't even speak out. All of these sins, all of these things that we know are wrong, and sometimes we stop and think, if I know that they're wrong, how much more wrong would they be in the sight of, a, of God? These things were placed on the innocent Jesus. These things, all of these, he took them on himself. He took them on himself. He, he, this was what he was horrified by before he died. You know that some people have gone to death singing. Some people have gone to painful death rejoicing. Some have sung while they've burned. Some have rejoiced at the prospect of going into the lion's mouths in the amphitheaters in ancient Rome. People were, were happy to be martyrs. Jesus was not happy to go to the cross. Is that because he was cowardly? Because he suddenly lost his, his nerve and got frightened? No, I don't believe that. I believe the nature of his death was so different. He said, please, when he prayed to God the Father the night before, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink this cup. What he meant by it was to drink down to the dregs the full shame, guilt, and the punishment for our sin. That someone so innocent should suddenly become so, so a thing of horror on the cross. Such a curse was put on him. It literally says that in the Bible. He became sin for us. He became a curse 
He took it. He took it all on himself. And he cried out in his desperation those famous words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by God the Father. Completely abandoned. He felt the horror of it. He felt the, 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 the shock and the sadness and the shame of being left by man, but, but worse than anything, left by the Father, left by God. For our sake, he did this. And that kind of pain, you know, the psychologists say that surely the worst kind of emotional pain is the breaking of relationships. When relationships are, are special to us, special relationships are broken. That's the worst kind of pain. You think of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The love, the trust. He'd never known a cloud come between them. Never known any sense of distrust. Never known any sense of insecurity in his relationship with his Father. But on the cross for hours, he sought his face and found nothing but darkness. And that kind of curse. Have you ever lost a friend? Ever felt like, why is it so sad? Why am I so sad? I've lost a friend. Maybe you've been through a, a divorce or a, a deep relationship severing and it's cost you emotionally, hugely. We can only guess the weight of this, the weight of it, in the heart and mind of God the Father and God the Son. And on the cross, he carried all of that. And then at the end of it, he said, it is finished. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. It's accomplished. That's the, kind of, that's the meaning of the word he used. So you, you don't need to think that when Jesus died, as it says, he gave up his spirit. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit and died. You don't need to think that he, then he went off to be punished some more. No, 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 the punishment is complete. It's done forever. And this surely is the best news we could ever hear. If someone has been punished so badly, then I, I can confidently know that he will forgive me faithfully and justly. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. No, no, someone took the blame and he did it for me. It gives us opportunity to know, oh, I can live free from that, that guilt, that past, that shame. But what was he doing in this descent? And I, I want us to look at this. In the descent that he took, I want us to think about it like this. If he, if he was not being punished, what was he achieving in going down to the place of the dead? It seems that, that other characters from the Bible were excited about Jesus doing this, what he was going to do. There's a story of the transfiguration which, where, where the disciples went with Jesus up to, up to a mountain and they, they saw with him Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, who together, it says, discussed with Jesus the exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking together saying, we're looking forward to what you're going to do. We can't wait. These two deceased prophets from the Old Testament, these dead characters, somehow they appear there. Somehow they show up, the, the dead. And they say, we, we're looking forward to what you're going to do. Now, what's that about? That's a strange story if you think about it. There's something that the dead are looking forward to. 
And then you get Jesus himself describing his own death in mysterious terms. He says, the, the sign that I'm going to give to this generation is the sign of Jonah. This is what I'm going to, I, I'm going to be like Jonah. You think, well, what, in what way are you like Jonah, Jesus? Well, some of you know the story of Jonah. He was, he was the guy that got swallowed by a fish. But he got swallowed by a fish for three days. And actually, it seems from the way Jonah's written that Jonah died. He went down into death. He went down into the depths of the sea with a huge whale. And Jesus says, that's my story. I'm going to go down into the depths of the earth, he says. Just like Jonah, I'm going to go descend. I'm going to go down into death. Jesus was quite clear about what was going to be happening in his death. He was going to go down, he was going to descend. And interestingly, when he did rise from the dead, and this will come up to the resurrection shortly in the creed, but just to kind of peek ahead, he's in the garden in John 20 with Mary Magdalene, who has this famous encounter with the risen Jesus. First of all, she thinks he's the gardener because she can't understand who he would be. How could Jesus be alive physically in front of her? And he says to her, I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, I'm going soon. I, I haven't yet gone. I haven't yet ascended to my Father. That's, that's important to remember. What I'm saying, I'm kind of putting a few scriptures together here to help us to see that there's a big, there's a big chunk in the story of Jesus' death that we can sometimes miss if we're not careful. You get to places like Ephesians 4 in the New Testament where Paul describes it a bit more. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's talking about Jesus ascending to be with God the Father at the right hand. He says this then in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The descent of Jesus down into death was an important part, an important prelude to him being raised up to be the one that would fill all things, the one that would have authority over everything, to be the life giver over everything. And Jesus uh, introduces himself to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, John chapter 1, he says, he talks to him, he says, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one, I was dead and behold, I live forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. He's talking, he says, I've been there, I went through it, I was killed, crucified, buried, I died and then I was raised and I've brought back the keys. Something about this mysterious passage of time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, he, he was doing something. <laughs> he was going somewhere. He was, he was, Peter, his friend, describes it a little bit. And again, this is a difficult teaching for us to completely understand because, well, we don't, we don't really have the kind of images. You know, the, we, we try and make Marvel movies or, you know, Tolkien books to kind of imagine fantastical stuff. And it's stuff that's kind of perhaps beyond our grid of reference. So we try and imagine it, I suppose. But, but though it's mysterious to us, we need to get the key points. And Peter points again a little bit in this direction when in his letter he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, just as we were saying, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits 
in prison. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Jesus was going to the place of the dead to proclaim the victory that he had accomplished on the cross. What he accomplished in some way that we don't understand because the closest we've got is these near-death experiences that seem so mysterious. Spiritually, he went to proclaim his victory on the cross. And having done so, he was raised up. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 10 says, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 2 says, he tasted death for everyone. Now, some would say, how does this work with the thief on the cross? Jesus was crucified next to two people, and it says in Luke's gospel that one of them repented of his sins and put his trust in Jesus. And Jesus said to this thief on the cross, forgive me or or remember me when you come into your kingdom. Sorry, that's what the thief said. Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's made a lot of people think, well, what is this about Jesus going down into hell? But don't forget, first of all, I didn't say he went down to hell. Not in the sense that he went to what they would have called Gehenna, or what we might have called the lake of fire, a final place of punishment. No, no, he went down into Hades. And actually, by saying to the thief, you will be with me in paradise, he's basically saying, you will come with me to the place of the dead, Abraham's bosom, if you like, and we are going to take... (laughs) Those people who have died faithful, those people who've waited like Elijah and Moses, those who've longed for my appearing, those who died trusting before I arrived, still under the the, the power of what Isaiah describes here, the, the, the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations, this horrible enemy of death. However much they trusted in the God that set them free from slavery, set them free from Pharaoh. This was their story, uh, is Israel. They'd been set free from horrors of all kinds. And God had saved them and rescued them and fed them and kept them and looked after them and made them promises. But they still went down into the place of the dead. They still had this sense that, that there was an enemy, a terrible enemy that they couldn't defeat. Maybe we won't even see this defeated in our lifetimes. And will God ever defeat this enemy? Is this enemy too great for God even? And Isaiah says, no, there'll be a day. There'll be a day when I'll rip away this blanket that covers the nations. I'll rip it away. There'll be a day when a champion will rise who will destroy even this enemy. He's coming. He's going to do it on this mountain, says the Lord. And so they waited, and some of them literally would have waited for, for hundreds of years in, in spiritual chains that we can't understand. And they were waiting for a deliverer to come and set them free, to break them out of prison. And the, the book of Hebrews even helps us understand it further. Hebrews chapter 10, he says, The blood of bulls and goats didn't have power to cleanse sin. Why do I say that? Well, these people, they were faithful to God, but their way of dealing with their sin, their guilt, their shame, was by animal sacrifices. And that was was their way of trying to be faithful to God. We deal with that. We've sinners. We need help. We need need to be forgiven. We need someone to take the punishment. So here's bulls and goats. And and the writer of the book of Hebrews says, didn't have power. (laughs) All it could do was point to the real sacrifice. Every bull, every goat that was sacrificed, they did it faithfully, but it only ever really pointed to the greater sacrifice to come. And that's what he came to accomplish. And so Jesus was able to say to that thief on the cross, 
you're coming with me. We're going to do a prison break tonight. Come down with me tonight. We're going to bring them. We're going to burst them out of that place. It's going to be an adventure. This is the, this is the nature of his descent into hell. He took, he took paradise into better quarters. And it was left empty of saints. Hades. Still a place awaiting, sadly, for those who are not in Christ. But no longer the place where those go who are destined to be with him forever. This speaks about God's willingness to rescue us. Even in the most dark places. You saw the video of our friend Joel. The, the most hideous point of life when a drug habit has brought you to a place of fear and danger, wasting your life away. You might think, well, what, what is the point of my life? What am I even here for? And I guess for many people who, who are watching this, you, you can easily get to the point. Maybe, without, maybe even if you're brought up in a nice home, maybe, maybe, maybe you've been a Christian all your life and you think, I, I've still wasted so much of my life. Maybe you've never considered Christianity, but you've, you've got to the point of thinking, could anybody rescue me? Could anybody spring me from this jail? Is anybody able to get through? Is there a moment of grace that could bring the gates of heaven to me? And the truth is that Jesus has already done everything necessary. If Jesus could take on the great enemy and the measure he was prepared to take to do it, you ever seen one of those films or stories where characters are in a dangerous situation and a, and a character from earlier in the film shows up and rescues them? And you know those moments where it sort of brings a deep light to the whole plot. You just, you just feel like happiness kind of floods the story as somebody comes that from an earlier scene, someone you recognize, breaks in and rescues them, deals with their enemies, deals with the guards and takes them away. And you just feel so delighted at the, the, this character. You think, what a precious rescuer this person is. And this is Jesus. Jesus is the perfect rescuer. Jesus is the great hero of the story. The second thing it tells me is that God was determined to restore humanity. The reason we're in this prison of death is because of the, the sin of our father Adam. We talked about this last week. The failure of mankind, the failure to stand up to our calling, the abdication of our position. You know the story of Edward VIII in the early 20th century, the king who gave up his throne, gave it up, didn't want to be king anymore. And it left, it left the nation in the lurch, it seemed, for some. Thought this was terrible at the time when Hitler was becoming powerful. We needed a king. We needed someone who would step in and take authority and not abdicate and not give up and not yield. And that film, The King's Speech, is kind of about this unlikely king who couldn't speak properly with this terrible speech impediment, this stutter. And yet he took responsibility in his weakness. So I will speak for the nation. It's a kind of, a, it's an emotional film. You could say it's a sentimental film, but it's built on a great story, a great theme. But when one man fell, another man said, I will stand. I will stand. Jesus has for us stood and taken the worst that can be thrown at someone, even death. He took death on. And because of him, there's dignity. Humanity has dignity, has destiny. We can hide in Christ and know 
we have a future. We have a, a, a future, even in the reality and the horror of death, we can be confident of a great, glorious saviour. And if it means that prisoners are rescued, it means that humanity is restored, it also means death is imploded. <laughs> death is, is defeated. He has tasted death for everyone, as Hebrews 2 says it. So death, which is built on this foundation of Adam's failure, the power of, of sin is the law, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the power and the sting of death is, is because of sin. Because of sin, we are subject to death. And sin being defeated on the cross means that death is defeated. Death is defeated. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Though he may die, yet he shall live. In Christ, there's this extraordinary victory, even over death. This isn't to be kind of fickle about, but the honest reality, friends, is that for the Christian, death is now a toothless enemy. It's an enemy, but it's lost its threat. The emperor has no clothes. It's not the danger it used to be for us. The early Christians, they got this. You can read the stories of the first few centuries of the church. They went through incredible persecution, violent persecution, slaughter for many. But they got into this, this way of thinking where they, they genuinely began to see it as almost light. One of the great writers of the early church, Athanasius, he said, it's like watching children play with a lion. Christians with death. When you watch children, you think, if children were playing with a lion, you think, there's something wrong with that lion. <laughs> there's something seriously wrong with that lion. He says, that's how it is. With church and death, we're like, we just play with the lion because there's something wrong with it. It's broken. It's been imploded from the inside. It's been taken down. At our death, all it does is it, it brings us to Christ. It gives us genuine hope to know, genuine peace to know that death is ultimately no more for the believer. For the believer, it's, it's, an, it's an area of, of confidence and, and hope. So the applications for us are that we need to keep rewinding the tape, you know? We need to keep replaying the video. What's your favorite, favorite last 10 minutes of a film? What's your favorite last... 10 minutes of a football match, your favorite, your favorite ending of a cricket match, your favorite ending of a story that looked like it was going to go one way and suddenly went the other. You know those stories, those matches that you saw, those things in your life where the drama of it took your breath away. It looked so hopeless and lost. And then we won. And you're kind of unable to think or talk about anything else for hours. You just keep replaying it in your mind. And Christians, you must do that because the greatest turnaround that ever could be took place for you. And we're foolish not to replay the video in our hearts all the time, all the time. That's why we come to the table. That's why we sing about Jesus. We are reminding ourselves we're standing again in the good of what he did. And it's strength to us. It keeps our souls from getting sour and getting fearful and weary. 
It keeps us from getting distracted. It keeps us from flirting with heavy discouragement. So now, wait a minute, wait a minute. These things may all be true. Death may still be there. These things are real. That's still a real enemy, death. But my Jesus has defeated him. It is a, it's a toothless enemy. I stand in the good. I replay the story. I live in this book. I remind myself of what he did for me. And it strengthens me. Practice. Practice death. <laughs> so replay the video. Practice, to, practice your dying. What do I mean by that? I mean, a Christian is someone who in Christ has died, right? If you're in Jesus, you've, you've gone down into death with him. So get used to it. Live that way. Practice it. Live in the good of it. I think of baptism. Have you been baptized? This is what you do when you're baptized. This is exactly why you get baptized. You know what baptism is? It's a coffin. It's a tomb. You say, I, I mean, everyone claps. <laughs> we all stand around and clap. That's really sick if you think about it. People, people are saying, you know, just like jumping off a tall building. I'm going to go in the water and I'm not going to come back. Well, not as the same person. I'm coming back in I'm coming back completely new. I'm going I'm embracing the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's how I find life. This is new birth to me. If you've not been baptized, you need to say I stand with Christ in death and in life. And it means the rest of your life is Christ shaped, is baptism shaped, death and resurrection shaped. When you want to get angry with someone, when you want to not forgive someone, when you want to be selfish, when you want to be greedy, when you, everything in you wants, 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 wants. Do what Paul said I die daily. Die instead. Choose to die. Choose to die to your selfish, fleshly desires, your feeble, trivial, superficial concerns, your. your pound of flesh, your grudge, your issue with someone from the last 10 years. Die to it. It's pathetic. Die to it. It's killing you anyway. Let it die. Come up with new life. Come up with Jesus Christ into new life. And then finally, hear his voice. And this is for those of you today who've never become Christians. And some of you, you need to hear his voice today. Terribly. The great comfort of this message is that Jesus has been through the worst places you'll ever go, including death. David in the Psalms put it like this, though I walk through the, sh the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the, the, the idea is that he's, he's a sheep, God is a shepherd. The idea of a sheep going, you know, you've seen these stories of, or movie, TV programs of uh, goats and sheep, you know, being, going through these weird valleys, places. How can they even climb that? How do they do that? And you see shepherds who, who, who know the terrain. They've been there. They've been there and they know how to get through it. Jesus, my friend, has been there. He's been through death. He's been through it. And he says in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Have you heard his voice? Friend, you've got to face a lion one day. You've got to face a real enemy. I remember when I was in Africa once and, and uh, I was in a, in a big park, uh, game reserve, and there was a guide that was with us and he had a big gun. And he said, There's, there are lions around here. It was just after breakfast, just got up, we were camping. He said, if you just stick with me, you'll be all right. And I stuck with him because <laughs> there were lions around. 
But I was with the guy who was confident, he knew the terrain, he had a gun, he knew what he was doing, and I was safe. Have you found that man? Have you found the person who's been through death? You found him yet? You need to find him. You need him. You need to be safe with him. He's the only place of safety. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of Jesus' death and his descent into the dead. We pray in Jesus' name that just as he has descended and we've descended in him and, and now been raised with him, Lord, we will know the wonder and the, the peace and the freedom from fear that follows. In Jesus' name, amen.